Thank you, thank you. There are real dangers in getting introduced by old friends. <laughs> Dive into contemporary Jesus research with me and you'll learn from the historians that Jesus likes to celebrate and to enjoy life. He's something of a party animal. He dines with unrepentant sinners. There's even gossip that he's a glutton and a drunk and that he brings whores to his table. He acts like a shameless fool in an honor-obsessed culture. He does not play by patronage nor defer to the powers. He hangs with the wrong crowd and gently encourages the unclean, the unhealthy, the sinful, the possessed, and the marginalized. With his principle for the moral life, be perfect like God and rain mercy on the good and the evil both. He brings the deadbeats into his gang. But Jesus is not gentle with forces that impede his mission of shame. He stirs up people under the heavy eyes of the colonial power in the tradition of Northern, Europe Northern Galilean charismatics. Um, he, uh, that's a good slip. Um, <laughs> You've seen some Northern European ones. Uh, Northern Galilean charismatics. He heals those oppressed with Roman gremlins of disease and madness. He fights with his family who reject him, and he snubs his hometown. He sets up a counter-family among his buddies, ragtag people not allowed to have jobs in the world, tribal families real homes. He requires that they wander from village to village begging like groupies. The gang violates civilized rituals of gender and custom. Their egalitarian lifestyle offends. They step on sacred toes. Surprisingly, Jesus is not very religious. He's spiritual, of course, but he's not much into organized religion. He may focus on things Jewish, he may campaign to restore Israel, he may joust with the theologians, more likely he just ignores them. Properly, probably he is an observant Jew, but just as likely he will walk past Torah. Somehow he manages to live a remarkably secular-looking life. Free from piety's concern for holiness, for purity, for repentance, for sin, he has little time for the fine points of doctrine, interpretation, the sacrificial life of the temple. Jesus tries out the grim message of his mentor, John the Baptist, all that doom and gloomy judgment stuff. But he gives up sackcloth and ashes and leaves the desert to return to the Jewish villages of Galilee. There he uh, begins to act out God's worldly benediction on the nobodies, a knifing message of parable and aphorism. His theme is the invidious dominion of God, a reversal of the way things go in the world. For all this worldly good cheer, there's an eerie rigorism to this sage. Woe to you who have things. 
God's rule comes with dispossession. And in all this, Jesus swaggers with self-assurance, at once electrifying to the have-nots and impertinent to purveyors of authority, of propriety, of tradition. He puts himself into the center of things. He dismisses the mediators of power and status and divine access with a kind of authority of a cult leader. Some say he's self-absorbed, even cocky in his crusade. Others see him as dangerously revolutionary. After a few months of campaigning in Galilee, he heads to Jerusalem on holy days, throws a seditious fit in the temple, and the Romans dispose of him quickly. Such is my composite picture of near-consensus elements of the new Jesuses. It reveals that the contemporary historians have discovered a Jesus who is well-equipped to help us with many of our deepest concerns today. A Jesus who is armed morally for, for what? To sustain and transform a world in trouble. He will be an ideal, an inspiration, a mythic figure, maybe even a figure of worship who will aid us in constructing a world policy strong enough to face a world falling apart. Section 2. How remarkably new are the new Jesuses? Contemporary Jesus historians have been abandoning a hundred-year frame for thinking about Jesus. Or they've been radically modifying the older frame. The older frame was invented by Johannes Weiss and our friend Albert Schweitzer around 1900. It dominated New Testament research and theology for all of the 20th century. We call the frame the apocalyptic paradigm because it constructed Jesus within Second Temple Jewish apocalypticism as some kind of prophet of the end of time. Jesus preached the imminent coming of the kingdom of God, and that meant for the Jews the end of history. More or less, the historical Jesus was an exit strategy from life in this world. Now it is this frame that's disappearing in the third quest for the historical Jesus. Many scholars dump it completely especially those on the left wing. Others in the middle and the right wing crafted Jesus who is so removed from the end is near prophet that the kingdom of God is no real apocalypse at all. It's been metaphorized into pleasant Christian ideas. In either case, historians retreat from an apocalyptic Jesus. Oh, they will tell you that the paradigm doesn't hold the evidence any longer, and, and maybe they're right, but I think we have to be a little suspicious of that view. After all, historians are in a bind here. If Jesus really is an apocalyptic prophet, then he's either crazy or wrong, or maybe both. Schweitzer chose the first option. The real Jesus is the crazed and noble guy who throws himself under the wheel of the world to be crushed 
when God does not deliver the kingdom. Johannes Weiss said yes to the second option. Jesus is indeed an apocalyptic prophet, but history disproves apocalyptic prophets. And since Jesus was wrong, the historical Jesus is useless for theology and ethics. These two options are still out there. Which do you choose? You have to choose. Unless you can get out from under the weight of the apocalyptic logic. But how? Today, conservative historians attenuate the coming of the kingdom of God and metaphorize it away from a literal apocalypse. Liberal historians abandon the apocalyptic paradigm entirely. They're starting to think of Jesus as a sage, as a wisdom teacher. Here we have the new sapiential paradigm for the historical Jesus. Why are scholars backing away from the apocalyptic Jesus? Well, we have to guess at motives behind reasons, right? But surely apocalyptic is too world-negating to be the last word on Jesus. There has to be something in Jesus beyond an exit from a world in trouble. And historians are feeling this need every, much, every bit as much as theologians and ethicists. So we find Jesus' research in the midst of a delicious irony. As the world is really getting into apocalypse, as more and more of us are running around like chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the historians are backing away from a world negating Jesus. Why? Well, what good is a grim judge who ushers us into the next world when our problems are so overwhelming? What good is a Jesus who gives up on this world? So we name the irony. In a world genuinely terrified of the future, there's no surplus of meaning in a Jesus who is an exit strategy from this world. An apocalyptic Jesus cannot fix the world. Section 3. Perhaps it's a little too convenient that historians are finding a Jesus useful in our crises. Perhaps it is too convenient that the historians are not finding a Jesus of the left behind books. Maybe the Jesus historians are finding what they want in Jesus. You probably know it was Albert Schweitzer who in 1905 discovered that Jesus historians do just that. They busily reconstruct the Jesus of history and lo and behold, they concoct self-portraits. Jesus who mirror uh, their own views. Schweitzer exposed the Jesuses of the 19th century as cultural reflections. Today, critics do the very same thing with the uh, Jesuses of the third quest for the historical Jesus. That is, 
Critics reveal how historians project values onto the figure of Jesus and make him one of us. The American New Testament scholar Henry Joel Cadbury spoke of this projection as a modernizing of Jesus. And he warned that it was a danger to modernize Jesus. As a retired Feuerbach scholar, I don't like the language of projection. Not at all, and certainly not for what the historians are doing. I speak of it as a retrojection of value. To emphasize what Christer Stendhal used to call playing Galilee with Jesus. Retrojection. Historians throw contemporary concerns back onto a figure separated by time and space. Lo and behold, Jesus foreshadows our pressing concerns. We find that he was an environmentalist, or we discover he's a pacifist. Sure enough, he is a feminist. In fact, he is a model of feminism, and we are to follow him in treating women as full humans. Note the specific structure of retrojected value. An age or a person takes cherished ideals and predates them in awaiting Jesus. One day Jesus is a warrior, and the next he's a friendly pacifist. One day he's a mother-hating celibate, and the next he's into family values. Retrojection takes values close to us and throws them far away, unto Galilee, as it were, unto one who is other to us in time, geography, culture, value. We exoticize our values in a backward act of externalization. When our familiar concerns land on Jesus, they find a foundation. Our concerns are valorized, anchored in the primal structure of reality, and raised to the max. We then draw Jesus forward, larger than life, and receive him as the highest instance of the value. Jesus then inspires us as our archetype, edifies us as our model, and judges us as our ideal. It was Schweitzer who gave us the permanent suspicion of any quest for Jesus. That the historical Jesus is nothing other than a project in autobiography. Every historian's Jesus mirrors his or her social and ideational situation. Every painting of Jesus launches a value backward so that it can lurch forward as the ideal way of being human. And apparently it doesn't matter whether you happen to be a believer or not, whether you are Christian or not, whether you're a historian or not. When you think, Jesus, aren't you imagining a spruced up copy of yourself? So Schweitzer posts the permanent challenge for Jesus' research. How can a historian break free from the self-mirroring we call the historical Jesus? After Schweitzer, 
a whole generation of scholars got scared of questing for Jesus. They did not think they could avoid the retrojective tra uh, trap. When some bold ones started to quest again, a second and then a third time, a whole batch of modern Schweitzers howled in criticism. They became value sleuths, <laughs> uncovering contemporary values packed into all these new Jesuses. The sleuths discovered a ton of American values, patriarchal values, bourgeois values, European colonial values, liberal values, academic values, baby boomer values, secular values, liberationist themes, pacifist themes, you name it. I used to be a values sleuth. I've reformed. In the last couple of years, however, I've given up rooting out retrojected value. I've started to think there's more happening in the retrojection of values than the sleuths are seeing. We need more than their suspicion. We need to figure out a way to recover the good stuff happening in retrojection. Section 4, Insulating the Christ from Jesus. Many uh, scholars have abandoned the quest for the historical Jesus forever. They think the attempt to write a modern style history of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is all wrong. Why do they think this? Well, they've been influenced by a whole number of currents. Reformation doctrines of faith, by Melanchthon's locating Christology within soteriology, by Kantian epistemology, by Kierkegaard, Barth, Bultmann, by existentialist currents, by developments in history writing, and by Schweitzer's own critique of questing for the historical Jesus. The grandparent of the anti-quest tradition is a German from the 1890s, Martin Kaler is his name. He argued that faith has no interest in the historical Jesus. The anti-quest people make three sorts of arguments. First, they argue we cannot know enough to write a history of Jesus. That's a kind of historiographical claim that has to do with the kind of evidence that we have for Jesus. Second, they assert that people of faith have no stake in a historian's modern reconstruction of the life of Jesus. This is a claim that arises out of certain kinds of understandings of faith. And three, they conclude that the quest for the historical Jesus of the last two centuries have failed. This is a claim that arises out of the history of the research and, and it reveals the extent to which Schweitzer's critique of retrojection really stings the whole project of the quest. Now I want to vault over the can't know positions and the don't want to know positions to get on to my business. Let me simply report that the can't-know debate today 
has morphed into the question, how much can we know? Reasonable historians today think we can know a fair amount of Jesus. And I have to say, Christians look really foolish when they hold on to the agnostic position. And theologians look scared, arbitrary, fundamentalistic, as if they're hiding something when they hide from the historical quest. Among Christian theologians, the I don't want to know position remains a lively option. And I dare say there are some in this room who share this view. My basic position is this. In a historically capable era, Christians have a vested interest in historical research on Jesus. Christian faith cannot be insulated from historical research. Why? Because the logic of the Christian religion is an incarnational one. Biblical religion is worldly, is invested in the life of real people and real history. The Christian logic is not an idealism, not a mythic consciousness, not a pleasing picture, not a good story, not a good ethic, not a warm spirituality, not a repeated creed, not the decision of the bosses. The Christian thing may include all of these things, but its center is that something happened in and around this Jesus figure. And happened takes us to history, real history. What happened in and around this guy that got the earliest followers so excited? That could be a historian's question, but it certainly is a theological question. All the shouting for this guy, all the scrambling to find the right words, and, and eventually all those highfalutin doctrines, were they well launched? Section 5. I want to re-describe what I've been calling retrojection. My long-term uh, current academic project is to figure out how Christology can use historical Jesus research. Uh, can we build a quested Christology, as I call it? Can theology employ historical research uh, res results on Jesus for articulating what is Christic about Jesus. As I see it, I can't get very far on the big question until I can deal with the bad smell of retrojection. <laughs> the charge of retrojection gives questing for Jesus a bad reputation. I need to rehabilitate it. And that's what I'm going to try and do. On the historical side, rehabbing the quest for the historical Jesus amounts to a call to do history writing better. With more critical checks, more self-awareness of value, with more hermeneutical sophistication. The theology side, I have to admit, is more trouble. Since the insulated position is sealed up by a view of faith that is immune to historical research. By definition, no historical discovery can crack this doctrine. So, it's only with a different notion of faith that I can 
reject insulated Christologies with good reason. It's only when I work with a different theology that the door is open to Christological revision at the hands of good historical work on Jesus. Now, I have to admit that there, is time when, there are times when historical work on Jesus is not so good. The historians have cooked up some painfully trendy Jesuses. And the naysayers on the quest have a point. But I have to save their insight without their layers of insulation. I'm not willing to accept their critique directly because they aim to squelch the quest for the historical Jesus. Remember, they think that if you dabble in Jesus research, you sell the Christological farm. So I'm in the odd point. The only way to honor the anti-questing anti critique within a quested Christology is to turn it into a hyper-suspicion of historical bias and anachronism. This is an outsider critique that urges history writing to be good history writing. So, the anti-quest suspicion, for instance, makes me unwilling to retrieve blatant, ignorant, and manipulative re retrojection of value. When Lori Beth Jones makes Jesus the model CEO for corporate America, I will let that Jesus die. That's bad retrojection. Bad retrojection is nothing other than what historians used to call anachronism. As groundless modernizing, anachronism is bad news. It arises out of ignorance or out of deliberate manipulation. What about the subtler issue? When historians seem to bend Jesus to their values. What we used to call historical bias, or maybe now we would call ideology. I'd say the same. When bias or ideology arises out of ignorance or deliberate manipulation, then we too must reject it. So when the um, scholar G.A. Wells writes book after book after book demonstrating that Jesus never lived, reasonable people have to reject that view. It's unformed, uninformed, unself-critical, and downright ideological. After all, a historian must be in the know, must be self-conscious of his or her interests, and must not bend evidence at will. At this point, I'm wondering whether there can be better bias, as it were. Bias that does not bend evidence at will. Is it possible that some retrojection is better, not as rank as what Jones and Wells do? Better occasions of retrojection, where the, where the Jesus saga seems to invite our values. Here I have to tip the toe through a minefield. Over here we have the confident suspicion of the critics who believe that any historical Jesus is bad retrojection. 
Over there, we have the confidence of older historians who are certain they can have bias-free historical knowledge about Jesus. Or just as certain that we cannot know about Jesus. And then we have a whole batch of newer Jesus historians who embrace their biases and recognize how hermeneutically murky it is to find the line between fact and value in history writing. So my issue now is, how do we honor both the appeal to objectivity and the awareness that subjective and cultural elements give birth to past events? Without getting stuck in endless debates of philosophy of history, I'm going to simply stake my claim on a couple points. First, it seems to me that old-fashioned objectivist um, expectations for history writing uh, will not work. They just don't work for Jesus, most of all. So I'm going to buy long-standing and contemporary criticisms of objectivism in history writing. Second, some of the visions of history that emphasize the subjectivity of history writing overstate their point, I believe. I'm persuaded by the critics of postmodernism in history writing. So three, I'm adopting a Weasley middle ground that gives a nod both to subjective and objective elements in history writing. You can call it a constructive or critical realism if you like. To be sure, everything about the conduct of history writing is saturated in human subjectivities, theirs and ours. Therefore, popular realism about history is naive. History is constructed. Jesus is our construction. We imagine Jesus, yes. We invent Jesus. But Jesus is not simply an item of furniture in our minds. Jesus is not simply a blank page for unchecked retrojection of value. Now, I have to admit that the postmodern position is very tempting when it comes to this Jesus business. Getting a bead on Jesus is more difficult than figuring most all historical events. Why is that? Well, the evidence is scant, slanted, and episodic. The stakes are high for the liberally educated and the faithful. One historian suggests that figuring Jesus is like making sense of an ink blot. Everything happens in the construal. We really do invent Jesus. The historical Jesus is like the cloud we see a face in, or that wall that begins to leak, and lo and behold, we see the Virgin Mary. A month ago, someone found a cornflake that looked just exactly like Jesus. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Other scholars say figuring Jesus is more like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. This heuristic image is better. Only we have a 
500-piece puzzle and only 75 pieces are left in the box. And we have no box cover picture. Worse yet, the pieces we try to assemble are somewhat in our choosing. We're not even certain they're from the same puzzle. It's like going to grandma's. <laughs> no wonder that some people give up on questing for Jesus. No wonder that some see that any Jesus you come up with is nothing more than a self-mirror. My image of writing a history of Jesus is like working with the famous duck rabbit of the, philosopher, of the psychologists. We construe the figure. We shape it into a visual gestalt. And in so doing, we frame it in duckness. In Jesus' research, if not in all historical work, Thomas Kuhn's insight about scientific paradigms rules. Historians do not assemble a Jesus inductively. They lead with the frame. Of course, the frame can be tentatively placed in the vicinity of Galilee. It can be revised. It's always mediated through the pieces of the puzzle and through the history of Jesus's. And today, we probably can make critical judgments about frames so that we're not just victimized by the skin we're in. The important point for me is that there are few facts about Jesus. And the few facts about Jesus say almost nothing. Not nothing, but almost nothing until the historian draws the dots into a lie, into a coherent narrative flow. For instance, E.P. Sanders says, the most secure fact about Jesus of all is the temple tantrum. Now what is it that happened in that fact? How can we say it? What word? Was it a tantrum, a fit, a spell, a terrorist act? Maybe Jesus was clumsy. Was he angry? Why was he angry? A historian cannot name the intelligibility, much less the meaning of the raw fact without the frame. In Jesus' research, if not in all history writing, the whole gives birth to the part. Consequently, we have plenty of room for subjective elements in history writing. You will see my list of some items on the bottom of my first page there. Um, I've given you quite a long list of those. I won't read them. The consequence of these subjective items is that history writing is an imaginative art and inventing a Jesus is a work of the productive imagination. But inventing a Jesus is not the work of fantasy. Not anything is a Jesus. You can construe the duck as a rabbit by a skip of the mind, yes, but you cannot make the duck rabbit a turnip or an elephant unless you live in la-la land. The Jesus Saga offers points of resistance, I call them. These are constraints in the evidence which limit what we can say. These points of resistance have a certain weightiness that historians come back to. 
And for my purposes, they provide a relative defense against the unchecked retrojection of value. They push back against our interests, and they cannot be reduced to our interests. Now, you and I may debate whether Jesus was born in Nazareth, but it's unreasonable to claim that he never lived. We may debate the meaning of the temple tantrum, but it's unreasonable to deny it. But wait, there's more. In good history writing, historians have some relative checks against spinning points of resistance. And I've given you a list of the ones that I could think of on my uh, back page there. I won't read those. With a nod to subjective and objective features in history writing, I'm now ready to return to retrojection. Troublesome retrojection runs with a subjective against the objective. Bad retrojection lets the subjective smother the objective. What about good retrojection? Well, it's now to get time to get rid of the category. Retrojection is a misleading term, since it arises out of a dated notion that good history writing should be value-free. What is good retrojection, really? It is an explicit, self-conscious, public value uh, dialogue with historical evidence. With interests and perspective, it seeks out points of resistance in the evidence. It listens to them. It allows them to speak. It does not wander too far from those points. It's uneasy about asserting values where there is no resistance. The historian's articulate conversation with the Jesus saga is an activity of historical revision. Old Jesuses need to be revised. They're new sources, new approaches, new methods. Historians find new values, new sensitivities to the material. They're asking new questions. New people need a crack at inventing a Jesus. Some of these Jesuses will just well up in the values that a historian brings to the quest. Other times, a new Jesus will be an in-your-face critique of someone else's Jesus, an old Jesus, the culture that extrudes it. A new Jesus can be a wonderful critic of church and culture. At times, there will be several truthful Jesuses since historians invent invent under different conditions. And every now and then, a new Jesus will uh, represent a genuine new paradigm, just as historians overturn the apocalyptic paradigm for the wise and the worldly Jesus. Well, with all of that behind us, it should be obvious now that we could return to our inventory of the new Jesuses and have some fun debating whether this or that item can claim some resistance in the Jesus saga. Was Jesus really egalitarian? Was he really a feminist? It should be obvious 
that our contemporary Jesus historians are not hearing an apocalyptic Jesus. They hear a Jesus who is relevant to our current moral crises. They are bringing our cultural concerns, our anxieties, our culture wars to the Jesus saga. They are searching for moral resources in Jesus for a world in crisis. They do not want a Jesus for endgame. A Jesus who ushers us into the next world. A game-ending Jesus is not a past in which they want to live. They want to hear that Jesus sustains the world. Section 6. Looking for Jesus, a Jesus who sustains a dying world, is a lot to ask of history. Historians seem to aim the invention of Jesus toward things that are frankly meta-historical. Even low-budget historians who claim no interest in the juicy Christological questions of the Christians. They look at their invention with relevance, with critique, with social commentary, moral recommendation. They get caught up in questing for Jesus. They're moved by, sometimes in hostility, sometimes in inspiration. Uh, likely there's something about questing for Jesus that turns on the meta-historical switch in historians. Jesus is a classic in our culture, after all. And classics bend big, dense accounts. Historians are unable to leave him as 75 scattered pieces. We need a fuller interpretation of the meta-historical urge which dominates these Jesus historians. Here I distinguish two sorts of meta-historical activity on the part of the historians. One is a low-flying plenary function. It's part of all history writing. This is the function where the historian simply assembles the pieces. The plenary moment in Jesus' research is gigantic. It reveals many of the values of uh, the historian. Even a historian allergic to theology cannot escape this low-flying meta-historical work. Even a Jewish Jesus historian has to put together a Jesus rich in meta-historical value. But most Jesus researchers zoom even higher when they package a Jesus. They give out clues of deep value, suggestions of modeling and imitation, a reclaiming of ideals, recommendations that Jesus' way would somehow fix something. These values go beyond the plenary function of history. They're commending Jesus or his ways. What shall we call these meta-historical meta expressions? The only category I know is myth. They are entering the mythic. By myth, I mean a complex meaning unit and narrative form that is foundational for a people. Only I'm universalizing it a tad and tying myth to history. 
In a historical myth, the imagination picks up a telling moment of the past and elongates into something rather like what myth does for archaic people, giving them a sense of being at home in the cosmos. In historical myth, people pick up a past as authoritative. They pack it with value and existential concern, and they see it as commending a future. A past has become paradigmatic of future signification and further aspiration. It sweeps aside older ways of being, and it offers itself to subsequent revision. The new Jesuses are not simply 75 pieces turned right side on the table. The new Jesuses are not simply drawing out an unambiguous duck from the duck rabbit. The new Jesuses are more than plenary constructions. They are myths centered on the production of future selves. They commend Jesus as modeling a picture policy for the self and for the regeneration of life. Imaging what regenerates life. That's what myth does. And classic myths offer themselves for new epochs of regeneration as people reinvent its founding story. Okay, I'm getting ready to finish now, finally. Um, section 7. Once we recognize the mythic operative in Jesus' research, I'm really ready to complete my redescription of retrojection. It's possible to think of historical Jesus research as a relatively new avenue for Christology. It joins other historic modes for Christology, but it works up a Christological uh, realization by dropping into the arcane world of historical research on the first century. On its good days, a quested Christology launches a Christ by mythicizing a Jesus through a self-critical, value-aware, historical dialogue with the well-known Jesus saga. Compared to other Christologies out there, the route is indirect. Since it doesn't turn directly to the Christs of, say, the saga, or the creeds, or Christian experience, the route to the Christic is indirect. It goes incognito through a detour into an externalization, the historian's Jesus. The result can be an explosion of Christological insight. Sometimes the potential is camouflaged, not fully recognized. Other times, scholars say they have no interest in playing the cards of the deal. I'm just a historian. But for those who do play, the way to play is to pick up the performative possibilities of a mythically figured Jesus. When the historians are done inventing a Jesus or two, they've already launched a Christic recommendation. The only question is whether we, whoever we are, want to attend the performance. The objective moment, this invented Jesus, is an externalized self-sundering in which we meet who we would be in another. 
And if you're taken with his launch self, you have a live myth and an opportunity to perform its way of being in the world. Theologians see it as a great opportunity to clean the Christological house. My conclusion, then, is that um, when Jesus historians invent their Jesuses, I think they're conducting a Christological exercise. In my reading, the flurry of Jesus researches that we call the third quest arises at a time of cultural crisis, a deepening apocalyptic mood all over the world. In this crisis, historians are cooking up new Jesuses aimed to rescue the world. They've revised the hundred-year paradigm. They're getting Jesus to focus on the problems of our dying world. A Jesus who brings us an exit from engagement with the world. That could be a literal exit. Or uh, an exit into the personal, the private, or the otherworldly. These historians judge to be of no use. Instead, they work up new Jesuses that valorize and inspire our gospel of multiculturalism in America. Our whistling effort to be happy and world-affirming in dark times. Our, suspe our suspicion of institutions and our better day outrage over oppression. For the most part, the historians are crafting Jesus's to sustain the world. We might want to be uh, a little suspicious about some bad retrojection there. And in my suspicious days, I find some of the new Jesuses to be just a little too precious. But for the most part, they are working with genuine points of resistance in the Jesus saga. But I'm convinced the revision of the Christ in our time of crisis is incomplete. I think historians need to continue to have their incognito Christological conversations with Jesus over four, three new issues. As our apocalyptic crisis deepens, we need to converse more with the Jesus saga concerning wealth and poverty. Second, we need to work more to determine whether we can invent a Jesus who helps us with the problem of violence. And finally, we need to see whether there can be a theology of the land in one of our inventions. The first two themes find some resonance in Jesus, and the latter theme meets a surprising black hole in the Jesus saga. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Al. Are you ready to entertain a few questions? Yes, indeed. It's all yours. <laughs> Charlie, who's the artist here? 
Uh, Graham Sutherland. Cost us 95 bucks. But it's nice. Yeah, it's a giant tapestry. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Ed? So, um, the duck rabbit analogy um, does not allow for very much imagination. Um, there's just two options, as you say, can't be a two. But the ink block allows for a yeah. Yes. And then a third possibility is like a point-counterpoint debate in which antagonists are contradicting one another. And which of those three do you think the data that we have on historical changes is more likely? Well, the ink blot has virtue in that it allows much more free reign to the subjective features. And I, I like that, and that is very much in keeping with what one can do with the Jesus saga. The, the duck rabbit has the virtue of, um, even though it, it's limited, it's either duck or rabbit, you, you would think. Um, there's something, there's a certain thereness that I've been calling a point of resistance that I like. Um, there are two ways in which the, the, the conflict of views, the, the New Testament and the material outside of the New Testament is already a conflict of interest and fight uh, about the nature of Jesus. So there are trajectories of meaning that are in conflict there, and the history of the Jesus has since then and the history of the Christ has always been a, a history of conflict. So I think I want to. I, I would embrace all three of those. Yeah, how's that? Speaking of weaselly. Yeah. Ed. Uh, that would be to put the case in a more emphatic way than I would uh, suggest, encourage, uh, support, warrant incarnational claims. Yes, I would say so. And the counter. There would be... Well, for instance, I think it's important that we discover there was a Jesus. That it wasn't, like Wells says, an invention, or that Rimaris uh, was wrong on, on these issues. Um, I, yeah, I think it is among reasons, but, it, but it, it is something in principle. Um, you know, uh, Tillich, students used to ask Tillich, 
uh, what happens if Jesus dies in bed? Doesn't get to the cross. Does that somehow falsify a principal element of, of Christian religion? Um, I don't know if I would say it that bluntly, but it would trouble me to the point of being bothered if there were a clear record that Jesus' conduct did not contain the kind of deathward self-sacrificial pattern that is embodied in the image of the cross. It would bother me if, if, if evidence showed that lack. I think that would be anti-incarnational. I think it would under... You certainly aren't going to get proof of incarnation. You might get suggestions that precondition the possibility of the belief in the incarnation. Something like that. Yeah. What else? I don't study Jesus, you know. I study people who study Jesus. <laughs> so don't ask me about Jesus. <laughs> which historian and which theologian has influenced you the most? Or that you most agree with? Well, among the, um, the contemporary Jesus scholars in the third quest, basically 1985 through somewhere now, they're kind of dying off. I think the cleanest and the best uh, who is brief is E.P. Sanders. The most brilliantly exciting and electrifying and maybe wrong on a number of things is Crossan. He's the only one who is doing massively new methodological things that from my point of view just electrify me. But he also makes some howling mistakes, I believe. If you want one steady, centrist, monotonous, 2,300 pages, John Meyer is the best, the most thorough. He, he, is, he is awesome and uh, turns over every stone endlessly. Yeah. <laughs> I got to the end of 2,300 pages and I realized he hadn't written what, yet what I was looking for <laughs> some ago. That's bad news. Louder. Where does the resurrection fit into historical Jesus? Um, not terribly well. <laughs> um, No, I, 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 I think even the, the most traditional theologically uh, informed person would say that Easter is obviously not like other events in the life of the world. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. Um, my own reading is a theological one, that there can't be anything um, in Easter that's categorically discontinuous with that which goes before it. I, I, I have to admit I'm still fairly Bultmannian. Um, uh, Easter is the flip side of Good Friday. 
there are two events, flip side of the same coin. Um, depends on if you're uh, crying about it or you're, you're singing about it. So, I mean, that, that's the event from my point of view. So, I, um, you know that the most radical of the, the Jesus historians crossing on this point thinks that Jesus was just summarily thrown in the, the dump, I guess, out in Gehenna. Um, and, and no one knew where he uh, was uh, put. And that Easter experience happened over the next 10 years, or whatever he says, 20 years, can't remember. So, Corliss? I think no, I think it would have been the case that uh, Jesus researchers years ago would have been more homogenized than they are now. They're all over the map. And there's uh, not as much unanimity as my quick sketch suggests. Um, there are quite a few who have no, uh, no Christian interests at all. Uh, who are almost um, defiant in their uh, edginess toward Christians. There are quite a few Jewish scholars that are involved in Jesus research now. Um, yeah, in increasingly numbers of uh, people who are from other religious traditions that are starting to look at the figure of Jesus. Uh, they have to, they come at the figure of Jesus in refreshing ways, but and to some extent they haven't heard the the many 200 years of conversations to some extent. But I I don't think it's as uh, homogenized. But the interesting thing is, um, even among those uh, who are um, not interested in any of the faith questions, the theological issues. Um, Jesus remains an, an interesting cultural classic um, that it's hard to put together without already being in the midst of very thick and rich value issues. I would say the same thing if I were trying to make sense of the Buddha. You can't treat the Buddha as the, a consumerist without missing that he is making fundamental claims about the nature of reality. So it may be that the peculiarity, unlike Jesus or Julius Caesar, is that we're dealing with a, um, that one has to almost go at historical research on a religious founder in a way different from uh, other historical events. Since in Great Khan this week we've been reading Socrates, I must say that today I was thinking that the historical Socrates and the way uh, he becomes mythicized and damned um, provides a very intriguing 
uh, analogy to the figure of Jesus. It would be hard to turn Socrates into something fluffy and irrelevant in our culture. Because he's, he's just a giant in our, uh, something like that happens with, I think, uh, secular historians of Jesus, too. Yep. Well, the burst that is the third wave of questing for Jesus is probably over now. Uh, I would say in the last couple of years, the last has happened. There are a few things that are trickling in yet that are interesting. So I, I think we'll be in a, a phase now where there won't be very many breathtakingly new uh, historical studies. What intrigues me, and it's kind of a little bit of a vocation for me, is that the theological application and uh, assessment of all this stuff uh, now begins. And it, it's uh, the first theological assessments were Schweitzer like. They were just, you know, this is all wrong. Just all wrong. Uh, and now, myself included, there are people out there that are saying, there's some kind of exciting things going on here. Yeah. So, by the way, I don't think you can get all Christology out of historical Jesus. I should say that. Because some people, yeah, why not? Yes? Um, the, why are they abandoning the apocalyptic Jesus is always speculation on intentionality. Some people read it, it's just an Oedipal thing. These scholars had to throw out the Jesus that shaped them, that they were raised on, that their teachers... So that's one reading, and I have to say, that's very attractive to me. I mean, there were... From day one, some of these people who are now the senior figures in the movement, uh, they could not wait to dump on their teachers' Jesuses. That was their Oedipal strike. Huh? It, it, I suppose this sounds kind of bizarre, huh? Uh, but, but I mean, that's the way they, they acted. You overthrow your, the earlier generation. Uh, but I think beyond that, there is the sense uh, the growing sense, the one that I've articulated or tried to, that um, an apocalyptic Jesus is useless. Unless you so fiddle with apocalypse that it doesn't mean end of time at all. And that's what 20th century theology did. When Schweitzer and Weiss were done, they were running from the Christian tradition. The jig was up. Schweitzer went to Africa and gave up theology, so to speak. And um, the theologians that followed Schweitzer and Weiss, 
came out with about um, six or eight radically different types of uh, interpreting apocalypse without it being a literal end of time. You know, the left behind stuff. Um, existentialist readings, decision, liberation theology was one of the classic types, the last one invented, by the way, I believe, who were taking the apocalyptic Jesus and doing something with it. But uh, the, the left wing who are into the, the sage Jesus, they want nothing to do with this apocalyptic stuff anymore. Yes? Well, I, I don't think we've seen much of that yet. What we can anticipate, one of the things that's very new and exciting is um, the new millenarian studies in anthropological worlds are bringing to bear on apocalypticism a whole new vision of what's involved in apocalyptic that's very richly cross-cultural. It, it's drawing from people all over the world, not just these uh, folks in the Jewish tradition. So I think that there's a real possibility of some new spins in that one. But on the other side, the uh, the notion that Jesus is a wisdom figure. There's all kinds of opportunity in connecting to um, uh, theologies of other traditions. And, and um, yeah, so I, I, I can imagine there might be some opportunities there. I think we better quit. Thank you very much. Thank you.